The figure about whom I propose to talk this time is Alexander Herzen, who really ought to need no introduction. No good biographies of him exist, perhaps for the very good reason that his own autobiography is a great masterpiece, one of the greatest literary masterpieces produced in the 19th century. It isn't very widely known in England, and that for no very good reason, for it has been translated into English, the first part magnificently by the late Mr. Duff, and the whole by Mrs. Garnett. And the book is one not merely of political and of literary genius, but marvelously readable as well. In some ways, I suppose it really resembles Goethe's Dichtung und Wahrheit more than any other book. For it isn't purely a book of memoirs, nor is it a book of political reflections. It is a curious amalgam of personal detail, descriptions of political and social life in various countries, vignettes of persons, descriptions of his own youth and early manhood in Russia, descriptions of journeys in Europe, of Paris and Rome in 1848 and 49. These are really marvelous and the best documents about those events that we have at all. Discussions of political personalities, of aims and purposes of various parties, and all this interspersed with an astonishing variety of reflections, of pungent observations, of marvelous vignettes of individuals, of forms of life, of the character of peoples, descriptions of economic and social facts, discussions and epigrams about the future and the past of Europe, about his own hopes and fears for Russia, and all this with the most extraordinarily and revealing and really very poignant account of his own personal tragedy, perhaps the most extraordinary self-revelation on the part of a sensitive and fastidious man that ever could have been written down for the benefit of the general public. He was born in 1812 and died early in 1870. He was born in the year in which Napoleon overran Russia. He was the illegitimate son of a rich and well-born father, Ivan Yakovlev, a morose, difficult, possessive, but interesting, distinguished, civilized man who bullied his son, loved him, and embittered his life and had an enormous influence upon him, both by attraction and repulsion. His mother was a gentle German lady from Stuttgart in Württemberg, with whom his father formed a connection when he traveled abroad, but whom he never married. He brought her back to Moscow and called his son Herzen, as a curious kind of token of the fact that he was a child of his, of his Herz, of his heart, but not legitimately born, and therefore not entitled to bear his name. The fact that Herzen wasn't born in wedlock probably had a very considerable effect on his character and may have made him much more rebellious than he might otherwise have been. He received the regular education of a rich and well-born young man, went to the U University of Moscow, and quite soon there asserted his very original, vivid, and most unusual nature. He belonged to the generation of what in Russia came to be called superfluous men, with whom Turgenev's early novels are so largely concerned. These young men have a place of their own in the history of European culture in the 19th century. They belonged to that special class of persons who were born aristocrats, but who go over to some freer, more radical mode of life and thought. Nothing is more attractive than these people who still retain the manners, the texture of life, the habits, the general style and outlook of some exquisite, civilized, aristocratic milieu which gives them a peculiar kind of freedom, a spontaneity, 
distinction of mind, large and generous horizons, as well as deep inner elegance and enormous intellectual confidence and a kind of intellectual gaiety which is quite unique to people born under these conditions. And with all this, at the same time, their lives are filled with a desire for everything that's new, progressive, rebellious, young, fresh, everything that is coming with the future rather than the past. Certainly among the most attractive personalities in the West are these curious intermediate figures who stand upon the frontier, people who live between the old and the new worlds, between the aristocratic world and the new radical world, between the douceur de la vie of a world which is about to pass and the new, dangerous, untried forces of the future, the violent new world which, which with all their temperament and all their strength, which really comes from their solid, confident background, they themselves try and bring into being. Herzen belonged to this kind of milieu and this kind of outlook and this kind of social origin. He himself really gives far and away the best description of what it's like to be a man of this kind in a suffocating society where there is no opportunity for putting to use those gifts and skills which one is born with. He himself gives a very poignant and very, in a way, very tragic description of what it is like to be filled with radical ideas which come drifting in from all kinds of sources, from the utopians of the West, from the German philosophers, and then find oneself in a milieu where it's quite impossible even to begin to dream of realizing any of those apparently harmless and moderate ends which seems so very commonplace in the Western world. The result is that one of two things normally happened. Either young men of this sort simply subsided, gave in, came to terms with reality, and became mild, melancholy, gently frustrated landowners, living on their estates, reading thick, serious periodicals which they imported from Petersburg or from abroad, talked wistfully about the desirability of this or that reform, occasionally introduced new pieces of agricultural machinery or, or, or some special equipment which uh, struck their fancy in England or in France, discussed the need for change, but always with a gloomy implication that nothing either could or would be done. Either that, or alternatively, they fell into some kind of violent despair and melancholy and became self-devouring, neurotic, destructive personalities, poisoning both themselves and the life around them. Herzen was determined to escape from both these predicaments. He was determined that, of him at any rate, nobody would ever say that he had done nothing in the world, that he had simply given in and collapsed. And that's why he finally emigrated from Russia in 1847, determined to devote himself to the life of some sort of activity. He knew that his education had made him a dilettante. He knew that, like all the young men brought up in the aristocratic milieu, he'd been taught to be too many things to too many men. And this was the reason why so many of them found it too difficult to become specialists in any of the recognized professions. Indeed, that's really perhaps a general reason why relatively so few aristocrats turn out to be successful practitioners of any professional discipline. I mean, there are, of course, notorious exceptions to the contrary, no question of that. I mean, there's Byron, or there's Tolstoy, or there's uh, the chemist Lavoisier, or Lord Acton. But by and large, I should have thought it is true to say that people brought up in these kind of conditions are taught to reflect too many aspects of life, to make themselves agreeable to too many different kinds of people, to be able to face too many sudden conflicting situations, ever to be able to concentrate enough upon any one particular activity, 
any one fixed design in life. Herzen talks very wistfully about how wonderful it is to be able to inherit a skill from one's father, to be put into some set of fixed profession, so that all the million alternatives in which gifted young men who've been taught too much and who are too rich and who have too much uh, opportunity for doing too many things are continually scatter and lose themselves. Well, filled with this passionate idealism of his whole generation in Russia and with a great sense of guilt told the people, he determined to do something for himself in his country, and he became a publicist. And of course, everybody who knows anything about the history of Russia in the 19th century knows that Herzen founded the first free, that is to say, revolutionary press in Europe, and thereby laid the foundations of revolutionary agitation in his own country. He dealt in his periodical, which was called The Bell, with every kind of matter of topical interest. He exposed, he denounced, he mocked, he became a kind of Voltaire of the mid-19th century, at least as far as the Russians were concerned. And so effective were his articles, they were written with such verve, such brilliance, and at the same time such sincerity and such passion, that people in Russia read them, although they were, of course, officially forbidden. Indeed, it was said that the emperor himself read them. Certainly his officials read them. And during the heyday of his influence, Herzen really exercised very considerable power in Russia itself, by exposing abuses, by naming names, and above all, by appealing to those liberal sentiments which, even in the very heart of the Tsarist bureaucracy, weren't completely dead, at any rate, during the 50s and 60s. However, it isn't really with this aspect of him that I want to deal. Perhaps before going further, I ought to try and give you some kind of description of what Herzen was like as a man, what he was like to meet, what kind of uh, personality he had. And I think perhaps the best description of it is given in the book after which these lectures are called, in the marvellous decade, by his friend Anyankov himself. Let me read it to you. This description, of course, was written fairly late, somewhere in the late 60s. Anyankov says, I must own that I was puzzled and overwhelmed when I first came to know Herzen by this extraordinary mind, which darted from one topic to another, with unbelievable swiftness, with inexhaustible wit and brilliance which could seize in the turn of somebody's talk, in some simple incident, in some abstract idea, that vivid feature which gives them expression and life. He had a most astonishing capacity for instantaneous, unexpected juxtaposition of quite dissimilar things. And this gift he had in a very high degree, said as it was, by the powers of the subtlest observation and a very solid fund of encyclopedic knowledge. He had it to such a degree that in the end it sometimes exhausted his listeners. The inextinguishable fireworks of his speech, the inexhaustible fantasy and invention, a kind of prodigal opulence of intellect, perpetually astonished and delighted his listeners. After the always ardent but invariably severe sentences of Belinsky, the glancing, gleaming, perpetually changing, often paradoxical and irritating, but always wonderfully clever talk of Herzen, demanded of those who were with him not only interest, but intense concentration, perpetual alertness, because you always had to be ready for a sudden reply. On the other hand, nothing that was cheap, nothing tawdry, could stand even half an hour of contact with him. All pretentiousness, all pompousness, all pedantic self-importance simply fled from him or melted like wax before a fire. I knew people, many of them what would be called serious and practical men, who couldn't bear Herzen's presence. On the other hand, there were others who gave him the most blind and passionate adoration. 
he had a wonderful critical disposition, which really was something in his mind from his birth. An astonishing capacity for exposing and denouncing the dark sides of life. And he showed this very, very early during the Moscow period of his life, of which I'm speaking. Even then, Herzen's mind was in the highest degree rebellious and unmanageable, with a kind of innate, organic detestation of anything which seemed to him to be an accepted rule sanctified by general silence about some unverified truth. In such cases, the, uh, so to speak, predatory powers of his intellect would rise up in force and come into the open. Sharp, cunning, resourceful. He lived in Moscow, still unknown to the public, but in his own circle of friends, he was already celebrated as a witty and dangerous observer of his own circle. And of course, what wasn't known was that he, he, what he couldn't altogether conceal either was that he kept secret dossiers, secret protocols of his own about his nearest and dearest in the privacy of his own thoughts. People who stood by his side, all innocence and trustfulness, couldn't fail to be amazed and sometimes extremely annoyed when they suddenly came on this or that side of his uh, activity, of the secret activity of his mind. Strangely enough, Herzen combined with this the tenderest, most loving relations to his chosen friends, although they could never escape his pungent analyses. But this is explained by another side of his character. As if to restore the equilibrium uh, of his moral organization, nature took care to place in his soul one unshakable belief, one unconquerable inclination. Herzen believed in the noble instincts of the human heart. His analysis grew silent and reverent before the instinctive impulses of the moral organism as the sole indubitable truth of existence. He admired in everybody anything which he thought to be a noble or passionate impulse, however mistaken, and he never, never laughed about that. This twofold, uh, so to speak, contradictory play of his nature Suspicion and denial on one hand, and blind faith on the other, often led to puzzles and to misunderstandings between him and his friends, and used to lead to quarrels and to scenes. But it's precisely in this crucible of altercation of this type that up to the very day of his departure for Europe, the people's devotion to him used to be tested and strengthened instead of disintegrating. And this is perfectly intelligible. In all that Herzen did, in all that Herzen thought at the time, there never was the slightest trace of anything false. No malignant feeling nourished in darkness. No calculation, no treachery. On the contrary, the whole of him was always there in every one of his words and deeds. And there was another cause which made one sometimes forgive him even insults, a cause which may seem unplausible to people who didn't know him. With all his proud, strong, energetic intellect, Herzen had a wholly gentle, amiable, almost feminine character. Under the severe exterior of the sceptic and the satirist, under the cover of a most unceremonious and not at all reticent humour, there dwelt the heart of a child. He had a curious angular kind of charm, angular kind of delicacy. But it was extended particularly to beginners, particularly to seekers after something. People who were trying out their powers. They found sources of strength and confidence in his advice. He took them into the most intimate communion with himself and his ideas. When, which nevertheless didn't stop him at times from using his full destructive analytic powers, from performing exceedingly painful psychological experiments on these very same people 
at the very same time. This is Anjanskov's description, and it is a very, very vivid, and I should think a very true, as well as very sympathetic one. But it is as nothing to the impression which the reader gains if he reads Herzen's own prose in the great masterpiece, My Past and Thoughts. There, his personality comes fully out. The impression which that leaves upon the mind is indelible and far superior, far more magnificent than even Onyenkov's good pages. The chief influence on him, as a young man in Moscow University, as upon all the young people of his time, was, of course, that of Hegel. And, curiously enough, in Herzen's case, although he was a fairly orthodox Hegelian at the beginning of his intellectual activity, he, as always, turned his Hegelianism into something very odd, something very personal to himself, something very different from the academic conclusions which the more serious-minded and the more um, pedantic of his contemporaries normally deduced from the Hegelian doctrine. The chief effect upon him of Hegelianism was the belief that no given theory, no simple doctrine, no one interpretation of life, above all, no simple, coherent, well-constructed scheme which people believed in, whether it was of great French mechanistic uh, theorists of the 18th century, or the German romantic constructions of the 19th, or the great buildings put up by the utopians like Saint-Simon or Fourier, or the socialist uh, structures of Cabet or Leroux or Louis Blanc, but all of which were very popular at this time, that none of these magnificent edifices, none of these great, simple, coherent buildings which were regarded as solutions to all the problems of life, none of these could conceivably be true, at least not in the form in which they were preached. And this he believed because he derived the view from Hegel that there could not, in principle, be any simple or final answer to any genuine human problem. That if a problem was serious, if it was agonizing, the answer could never be as simple as all that. Above all, it could never rest on some theoretical conclusion drawn by deductive means from some kind of abstract theoretical premises. This attitude really begins in Herzen's early forgotten essays, which he wrote at the beginning of the 40s, on what he calls dilettantism and Buddhism in science, where he distinguishes two sorts of people against both of whom he inveighs. One is the casual dilettante who never sees the tree for the wood, never sees the trees for the wood, who is terrified of, as Herzen says, of losing his own precious personality in an excessively pedantic preoccupation with actual detailed facts, and therefore always skims over the surface without ever identifying himself with any real knowledge, who looks at the facts, as it were, through a kind of telescope, with the result that nothing ever gets said except huge glittering generalizations which remain empty balloons. The other kind of student, what he calls the Buddhist, is the person who escapes from reality by frantic absorption in the trees, who becomes uh, an intense student of some tiny set of isolated facts, and who uh, views these facts through more and more precise microscope. And although a man like that might be quite learned in some particular branch of knowledge, almost invariably, and particularly if he's a German, and almost all Herzen's jibes and insults are always directed against the hated Germans, and that is curious because he was half German himself, particularly if he's a German, always makes him, according to Herzen, intolerably boring, philistine, and always repellent as a human being. Between these poles, it's necessary to find some compromise. And Herzen believed that if one studies life in a sober, detached, objective manner, one might perhaps be able to create some kind of tension, a sort of dialectical compromise, 
between these opposite ideals, neither of which can, of course, be realized fully, but neither of which can altogether be discarded. And this might make human beings capable of understanding life in some profounder fashion than if they plunge recklessly into one or the other of the two extremes. Well, this ideal of detachment, this ideal of moderation, compromise, objectivity, dispassionateness, which helps in this early period of his life, was preaching was something absolutely incompatible with his temperament. And this he realized because in his next essay, he suddenly makes an enormous plea for partiality. He says, I know this won't be well received. I know there are certain concepts which simply aren't received in good society, rather like people who've been in jail or people who've disgraced themselves in some awful way. I know that partiality is not something which is approved of. Nevertheless, nobody has ever said anything worthwhile unless they were deeply and passionately partial. And there follows a long and typically Russian diatribe against the chilliness, the meanness, the impossibility and undesirability of objectivity, of detachment, of not committing yourself, of not plunging into the stream of life. The passionate voice of Belinsky is suddenly heard in Herzen at this particular moment. But the real fundamental belief, which he developed at this time, which he then developed throughout his later life with marvellous poetry and imagination. And when I say poetry, I say it advisedly, because Dostoevsky, in later years, and very truly, said about him, and he didn't really like Herzen very much, though he didn't dislike him, he said about Herzen that whatever else might be said about him, he was a great Russian poet. And I think that's, there's a great deal of truth in that. The thesis which he developed in this very full and vivid way was this, that any attempt to explain human conduct or dedicate human beings to the services of any abstraction, be it never so noble, justice, progress, nationalism, all the great slogans of the time, let alone the dark reactionary ideas, which of course no good radical young Russian could conceivably even allow to be worthy of criticism. Even, in other words, if you begin sacrificing human beings to the great liberal ideals of his time, even if they are preached by noble figures like Mazzini or John Stuart Mill, to do that, it always leads, in the end, to the most fearful victimization, because human beings are complex, because life is far too complex for simple solutions, because any attempt to adapt human beings, to fit them into some simple schema, some conformity to any abstract ideal, be the motives for doing it never so pure, always leads, in the end, to the most terrible maiming of human beings, to a kind of political vivisection, to human sacrifices upon the altars of abstractions. Always ends by substituting one hideous tyranny for another, the slavery of socialism for the slavery of the Roman church. Let me give you a typical piece of dialogue between Herzen and Louis Blanc, the French socialist, whom he respected very much just to show the kind of frivolous way in which Herzen sometimes embodied his deepest insights. It, uh, the conversation occurred in London somewhere in the early 50s. Let me, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, Louis Blanc said to Herzen, I suppose in the general order platitudes which were exchanged with the revolutionary refugees of this time, human life, said Louis Blanc, is a great social duty. Man must always sacrifice himself to society. Why? I asked suddenly. How do you mean why, said Louis Blanc? Surely the whole purpose and the whole mission of man is the well-being of society. Oh, but it will never be attained if everybody makes sacrifices and nobody enjoys himself. Really, you are playing with words, said Louis Blanc. Oh, it's just the muddle-headedness of a barbarian, I said, laughing. 
both he and Turgenev placed at the heart of their doctrine the notion of the complexity and insolubility of the really important problems. And therefore, the extreme wickedness of trying to solve them by means of, so to speak, political or sociological gadgets. But the difference between Herz and Turgenev is this. Turgenev is ultimately a cold, detached, ironical personality who looked upon the tragedies of life from a comparatively remote point of view, who oscillated between one ideal and another, between claims of society and the claims of the individual, the claims of love and the claims of daily life, between the necessity for decent political organization and the necessity for emotional, individual self-expression, between all these things, he oscillated contentedly. Turgenev neither believed in God nor disbelieved, but the point about him is he enjoyed this intermediate position. He enjoyed his skepticism. And that is why, because he stood aside, because he contemplated these things in tranquility, he was able to produce great literary masterpieces of a finished kind, stories with firm beginnings, middles and ends, because he detached them from himself, because he didn't sufficiently as a human being care about the solutions, because he saw these things with a particular chilliness, with a particular creative frigidity, if you like, of an artist who can only treat his material from a certain distance, which creates a certain chasm between him and his material within which artistic creation is possible. Herzen cared too much. He really wanted solutions for himself in his own life. His novels are therefore a failure. On the other hand, his autobiographical sketches everything which he writes about himself and about his friends, all he says about his own life in Italy, in France, in Switzerland, in England, has a kind of palpitating directness, a kind of remarkable sense of first-handness and reality which no other writer in the 19th century begins to convey. His memoirs are really an astonishing work of genius whose quality I don't begin to be able to even try and communicate to you. The descriptions of England alone make them worth reading. The extraordinary description of this country, which he didn't like, although he admired, in which he gives marvellous descriptions of the lives of daily lives of Englishmen, of the law courts, of what judges look like when they sit, um, trying when they when they when they sit in court trying uh, foreign conspirators for fighting a duel in Windsor. There's a marvellous description, not really equalled, of an English judge who looks like a Red Riding Hood, who. Uh, not like Red Riding Hood, he looks like the grandmother, the wolf in Red Riding Hood. In his white wig, his long skirts, the sharp little wolf-like face, the thin lips, the sharp teeth, and the little bitter harsh sentiments which come out, with an appearance of extreme benevolence, these, these, these feminine clothes, the white wig which give him an imp would produce the impression of a kind of sweet benevolent grandmother, and yet the little gleaming eyes, the little the sharp acrid judicial humour. He gives descriptions of French emigres, of German emigres whom he detested, of Italian and Polish emigres whom he admired. He gives little thumbnail sketches of the difference between nations, between the English and the French, each of whom regards themselves as the greatest nation in the world and will not yield each other an inch and doesn't begin to understand each other's ideals. The French with their gregariousness and their neatness, the English with their solitudes and the dark romanticism, the tangled undergrowth of their illogical institutions. And then there are the Germans, he says, who regard themselves as an inferior fruit of the tree of which the English are superior fruit. 
come to England and after three days say yes instead of ja and well where it is not required. It is against the Germans that he and Bakunin always reserved their sharpest taunts, not so much because they disliked them personally as because the Germans to them seem to stand for a kind of borne, kind of limited middle-class rule in Europe, a mean kind of tyranny rather than at least the generous, magnificent tyrannies of history. With us, says Herzen, our slavery is arithmetical. We are simply a minority against a huge, overwhelming, crushing force of the Tsarist regime. But German slavery is algebraical. It is part of the formula of their very souls which nothing can eliminate. And in similar strain, Bakunin, echoing Herzen, says, when an Englishman or an American says, I'm an Englishman or an American, they mean I'm a free man. When a German says, I am a German, he means my king is more powerful than all your kings, and the soldier who is strangling me now will soon strangle you all. Well, this kind of violent prejudice, this, these diatribes against whole nationalities, do of course qualify Russian writers of this period. They may not be fair, they may not be just, they may be exaggerated, but they are, they are a kind of evidence of the particular temperamental reaction to the world which makes them lively reading even now. This endless irony, the disbelief in solutions, the belief that human beings are complex entities, that it is impossible to try and force them into any kind of straitjacket, all this, the perpetual explosion and blowing up of cut and dried schemata which the more serious-minded, the duller, the more pedantic saviors of mankind, whether socialists or conservatives, were always producing, inevitably made Herzen unpopular in the camp of serious revolutionaries. And the criticisms of him and of Turgenev, who in this respect stand side by side, as people who preferred to tell the truth, however unpalatable, who preferred to tell the psychologically telling thing, even though it might not fit with some general ideal, who refused to believe that because they were in a revolutionary army, the truth had to be suppressed, and they had to pretend that things were simpler or, than they were, or pretend that certain solutions worked, although they didn't work, because to say they didn't work might give too much aid and comfort to the enemy. The position of Herzen and Turgenev did become difficult. And just as Turgenev was attacked when he wrote Fathers and Children, both by the right and by the left, because nobody could make out if he was for Bazarov or against, just as he was always being attacked by the new young men in Russia for being too soft, too liberal, too ironical, too skeptical, impossible to fit in, for, generally speaking, undermining all noble idealism by the perpetual oscillation of his feeling, by not plumping, by not engaging himself, by not finally plunging onto one side or the other and declaring war upon the enemy, just as Turgenev was always being persecuted for what were regarded as minor treacheries, so Herzen was attacked by the severe, brutal young revolutionaries of the 60s for much the same thing. And his answer to them is exceedingly characteristic. The revolution is attacked him for being old-fashioned, for being an aristocrat, for being too rich, for living in comfort, for sitting in London and observing the revolutionary struggle in Russia, for being a member of the generation of the 40s, which simply talked in the salons and speculated and philosophized when all around them was squalor and misery and bitterness and injustice, for not doing something serious, manual labor, for not cutting down a tree or 
making a pair of boots or doing something which at least was serious and real and identified them with the suffering masses instead of all this endless uh, talk in uh, the drawing rooms of uh, wealthy ladies with other well-educated, nobly-born young men which simply uh, was a form of escapism of mere idle closing one's eyes to the horrors and the miseries all around. And he says, well, I understand what they mean, I see what they mean, but really, I can't help it. I cannot help it. I can't help preferring cleanliness to debt. I can't help liking decency and beauty and comfortable conditions of life. I can't help it. I like literature, he says. I like good literature more than bad. I like Pushkin. I like poetry. I cannot make myself into a violent brute. Just be- I can't believe that only scoundrels can achieve things. I can't believe that in order to achieve a revolution which will liberate mankind and create a new and nobler uh, form of life on earth, one has to be unkempt and dirty and brutal and violent and trample upon civilization with hobnail boots. I can't believe this, and I don't see why I should believe it. And then he says about the new young generation of the revolutionaries, they're our fault, we bred them. Because of our idle talk in the 40s, these were the people who came to avenge us. To avenge, well, not really to avenge us, but to avenge the world against us. They are, he says, the disease, the syphilis of our own revolutionary passions. What is it they had against him? That he was fiddling, fiddling cleverly while the people was burning. But no, he says, unless civilization is preserved, unless people preserve the decencies, unless the difference in good and bad and right and wrong are kept in mind, unless there are some people who are fastidious, who are free, who say what they want to say, who don't sacrifice our lives upon some large, nameless altar and force themselves into a vast, impersonal, grey army of barbarians marching to destroy. Unless this happens, what is the point of the revolution at all? Why should we do these things? Why should we stimulate a vast barbarian wave simply in order to sweep away the old world and leave nothing but ruins and misery behind? After all, he says, the great case for the prosecution, which Russian literature is even now and every day drafting against Russian life, doesn't come to saying that what we must do is crush everything out of sight and put in the new barbarism in place in the place of the old decrepit tyranny. Sorrow, skepticism, irony, the great the three main strings of the Russian lyre. And he says, to these I shall always be devoted. I will not play crude, vulgar, optimistic melodies when reality is very different. His real ideal is the preservation of individual liberty. Quite early in life, he said, that that is all he fought for, that is the only banner he ever carried, the preservation of individual liberty against all forms of oppression, against all forms of despotism. And what makes him unique in the 19th century is that he really did understand what made radicals radical, and he really did understand the dreadful consequences of some of the radical doctrines preached. He was in full sympathy, he had full psychological understanding of what made Bakunin as he was, of why it was the Jacobins who um, made the French Revolution were, in some sense, severe, noble, grand figures, far more magnificent than the old world, the sweet old world to which he was devoted, which they crushed. He understood perfectly the misery, the injustice, the suffocation, the appalling provocation, the inability to resist the dreadful claims of the, of, of, of the new world, the sufferings of the poor, the 
bitter cries for justice on the part of the crushed element of the population. He understood that only too well. And at the same time, he also understood that in certain respects, if pushed too far, this would produce the most appalling consequences and drive billions of human beings to unnecessary slaughter. It is a very unique case, that of Herzen. He understood far better than the professional political philosophers of the 19th century, who uh, on the whole tend to try and extract general principles from the life of the 19th century and to uh, recommend solutions which follow by rational means from tidy categories into which they classify opinions or principles or views. Far better than these people, he understood both the justification of violent revolution, the justification of saying that a pair of boots is more valuable than all the plays of Shakespeare, which the critic Pisarev once said in a moment of indignation, the justification for by, whereby the oppressed masses to whom culture really offers nothing but blood and sweat and tears, by which they throw off this monstrous yoke of the sweetness of life, of civilization, of culture, and also understood that there is vast value even in civilizations which rest upon slavery, even in civilizations where only a minority produces divine works of art, where only a small number of persons have the freedom and the self-confidence and the imagination and the gifts to be able to produce forms of life which last, forms of life which one can shore up against the ruin of our times. And this curious ambivalence, this defensive revolutionaries against our smug accusers among the liberals or the conservatives, and violent charges against the revolutionaries on behalf of the free individual, on behalf of the claims of life and art and human decency and human dignity, and on behalf of the kind of form of society in which human beings shall not exploit or trample one another, even in the name of justice or progress or, or, or other abstractions. This extraordinary ambivalence makes Herzen, in a sense, the most realistic, the most penetrating, the most vivid observer and describer of life in his own time. He understood everything. He understood the value of the Russian idealists of the 40s because they were so imaginative, because they were the freest and gayest and most civilized and most interesting society he'd ever been, and he understands the protest against it of the exasperated lower middle classes to whom it, this offered nothing, who merely felt snubbed by it, who merely felt this was uh, being simply a waste of time on the part of a lot of intellectual flunners with no serious understanding of the life around them. And because he understood both these things, his work, My Past and Thoughts, because it isn't a systematic treatise, and because it isn't written with a clear unitary tendency, and because it isn't written in order to support some single thesis, and because he wasn't a slave of any formula or any political doctrine, because of all this, it is a profound and living masterpiece. And it is really this that constitutes Herzen's greatest claim to our attention. Not his political views, original as these were. Not his social views, original as these were. For remember, he was a person among the very few in the 19th century who really disbelieved in all general solutions as such, and this in 1850 was the most unique position to adopt. Still, this is not the reason for which ultimately he claims our respect and our attention. The ultimate reason, apart from his interesting life, apart from the uniqueness of his personality, is that his autobiography is a noble Russian masterpiece. Worthy to be put on a level with War and Peace and the novels of Turgenev. One of the greatest works of art produced in Russia, which was by no means poor in works of art, 
particularly works of art in prose in the 19th century, one of the real glories of Russian literature. Marvelously written, marvelously readable, and one of the most fascinating and unforgettable documents any human being ever produced. It is this, really, as a writer of genius. In a sense, as a human being of genius who expressed himself in irregular ways, but expressed himself so ultimately with great success and triumph, it is as that that Herzen is worthy of our study and of our attention. And more particularly, because his views and his attitudes and his form of life, in some sense, have more relevance to our times than to even his own. Because he was a prophetic thinker. With Karl Marx and Tocqueville, he was certainly the best observer of the European scene in the 19th century. And because he was prophetic, some of the things which he says refer not to things which were inchoate and still unnoticeable to the common eye in his own time, but to things which, alas, have grown to monstrous size in our own and to which his works offer the best, most effective, and on the whole, most truthful antidote.